And in some cases, if it's not built properly, gets trapped and it can't out. So what we do is we do a visual inspection uh, and I'll use drive it as an example because that's the, the thing a lot of people are concerned about. Mm -hmm. um, drive it is technically exterior insulation and finish systems. So when, when people refer to drive it to EIFS, that's what it is. It's an acronym, E-I-F-S. So when we're inspecting an EIFS home, we do a visual inspection first. Then we have a surface scanner that we can scan the wall with. We actually put it on the wall and calibrate it so it measures moisture up to six inches behind the cladding. And we move that meter across the wall. And if it indicates that there may be moisture, then we probe that area. The probe holes are very small. They're about one inch apart. They're uh, about three sixteenths of an inch in diameter. And the probes in the wall take a moisture reading to determine the level of moisture behind the wall in the substrate. And then we record that reading, seal those up. So that's the process. But if we find moisture behind the wall, we also try and detect if there's damage. And if there is, then we have a recommendation as to how to fix it. So gotcha. we don't just find the problems and then give you know the homeowner a, a report and say, okay, that problem. Um, going back to what Dylan said before, we, we like to solve problems. That's what we're uh, in business for is to help people uh, resolve issues, whether it's for their own home or one that they might be buying. But you're not a contractor. You're an inspector. No. We only do inspections, and it's important to delineate the uh, that that uh, there's a line there. So you, a lot of times, we'll get calls from people, and they'll say, uh, you know, I I do inspections with my contractor since he built the home. And he comes out every year and he checks everything and tells me it's okay. And, and home's years old. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's kind of like the fox watching the hen house. You know, yeah, it, it, you, yeah, know, you know, I, I think for, for clarity, um, for everybody yeah. listening, Cliff, the thing I like uh, about what you're saying is, and you tell me if this is accurate, you're mm -hmm. not using your inspection business to generate leads for your repair business. Exactly. You don't want somebody coming out and saying, you've got this problem really and that problem for people and, to understand. oh, by the way, I can fix it too. Yeah. I think that's really important for people to understand is as a business, the, the, the diagnosing of the problem and the solution providing for that same problem, um, it's probably better for you if they're separate. Yeah. And, and it's not and always we have easy a, for people to understand. <laughs> Right. Well, and we do, we do, yeah, you and I have had years with that, but we do provide a list of contractors, you know, on our website, cliffcapsandconsulting.com. Uh, if you go there and click on resources, and then there's a drop down for uh, contractors, and we, and we do inspections all across the United States. So we have uh, inspectors in all 50 states and parts of Canada where we do inspections because we do, like I said before, lot of corporate relocate. So the mm -hmm. list of contractors there, we have no connection to them other than the fact that we know they, they do repairs and we know from work that we've seen that they do good work, but we don't get any compensation. There's no connection between us and them. We just provide right. the names and the contact as a courtesy to our clients. 
I I have a question. So on the yeah. which is good because we're on the radio, and if I don't have any questions, we're in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, then so we're just sitting here. Yeah, we're just sitting here talking about seventies uh, and eighties music. Um, so the house that you recently did an inspection for us on, and we're not going to name the address or anything like that, but yeah. the house that you did Oops. that inspection on is about a. I think it's about a. It was about somewhere around a 4,000 square foot house. It was all drive it. So it was all EIFS. There were some uh, obvious deficiencies in that without you even coming out there that I could visually see, you know, with the yeah. cracked, crack siding and so, so forth. On a house like that, you say you, you, you know, first you check with a moisture reading, and then if you get any sense of that, you'll probe it, and it's almost like a little pin prick, right? That you'll probe yeah. around the house. Okay. Mm -hmm. So on a house like that, <clears throat> how how many, how long does it take, and how many of those like little probing pin pricks do you have to do, or do you just well, do it where you're picking up moisture? It depends. Now, you know, we don't just probe for the sake of probing. We probe with a purpose, I always say. So water can get in through the surface of the system. It gets in at transition points. It's windows, doors, uh, balcony deck flashing, uh, roof wall intersections. So those are the areas we focus on. We'll first calibrate the meter on the wall with the, the surface scanner that I met before. And again, we're mm -hmm. talking just about EFs because we can't use that for stone veneer and stucco, it's specifically a tool for EIFS. Mm -hmm. So we calibrate that. And as we move across, you know, around the building, we're looking at those areas that are susceptible to moisture under windows and doors and things like that, that I mentioned. And if the scanner indicates moisture, then we probe those areas. And if I probe and I get a high reading, I also try and determine if there's damage. If I get damage, I'm gonna move to another spot the scanner also helps us map the moisture so we know how wide the damage is, how deep it goes, and mm -hmm. all of that. So it's a process, you know, and we don't want to make a pin cushion out of the building and we fill all the holes with an approved sealant. But on the other hand, you want to be as thorough as possible and cover all your bases. So that's that's basically what we Yeah. Do. How long did that did that inspection take? I'm curious. The typical inspection for a house like that would be about two, three hours. And wow. I always tell people, like, the longer the inspection takes, the more problems. It means we're finding more problems. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, move across the wall and scan and scan and scan. And if we're not getting anything, we're going to probe just to make sure the scanner's working properly. Mm -hmm. uh, but a lot of times, scanner's pretty accurate if you know how to use it. And you can go around the house and, you know, not every home has a multitude of issues mentioned mm -hmm. cracking before a lot of times we'll get calls from people and they'll say oh i got a you know a bird hole or a crack and i'm concerned and i have to kind of talk them down off the ledge because cracking is more of an aesthetic issue it almost never has anything to do with moisture oh really? so the two okay. are sometimes equated with each other but they're not related more okay. moisture gets in at windows than through cracks cracks are never really big enough and how do you repair that, cracks on on uh, on drive it? Well, with cracks, it, it's a little tricky. It depends where the is located, how visible it is, because you can do a patch, and it's going to look like a patch. It's no different than if you're painting in your house. 
you're not just going to, you have a scratch on the wall. You're not just going to paint that one section. You have to go from corner to corner. You got to mm-hmm. paint the entire wall. So it's mm-hmm. the same thing when we're repairing stucco, uh, depending again on the size of the crack, uh, you may have to refinish an entire panel uh, and that where it gets more costly for that type of repair. But again, yeah. cracks are more of an aesthetic issue. If somebody's living in their home and they're not trying to sell, I'll, I'll, you know, we'll go out and we'll do an inspection and I'll tell them, yeah, you've got this cracking. It's very minor. Um, when the time comes to tell your house, you're probably going to want to fix it before you sell it. But it's not, you're not in danger of taking any moisture and don't worry about it for now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so there are certain things you can, you can leave alone. Um, and that's an, another important distinction I want to make is a lot of times people will say, what's the difference if you're doing an inspection for a seller versus a buyer? And there really is no difference. The results are the same because the technique that we use is the same. But where there is a difference is there are subtle nuances in the way we, uh, in the way we communicate the the issues to the to the person we're doing the inspection for. Mm-hmm. So just using the cracking example, I could say to a buyer to a, a homeowner, inspect your home, and we found an area where there's some elevated moisture, but we see that the caulk is failing. Mm-hmm. And if you just fix, you know, redo the caulk in that area, it'll stop the water from getting in, and those readings will drop over time. Mm-hmm. But you can't say to a buyer, "Yeah, we found high moisture, but don't worry about it. If they caulk it, the readings will come down." Oh, yeah, they'll freak out. You know. Yeah. So you have to. There's the subtle nuances to you know handling those situations. Yeah. Um, and I always say that makes that's sense. part of the yeah that's part of the reason why doing inspections for a single family homes is a lot different than doing commercial inspections. There's a lot of handholding and dealing with the homeowners. Oh yeah. Their, you know, for most yeah. of them, it's the biggest investment of their life. Well, so, same on our part, you know, there's a lot yeah. of handholding through the whole process, regardless of where you are in that process. You know, you probably don't remember this, but you might. <laughs> okay. Um, so I started my career at Caldwell Banker about 300 years ago. I've jokingly, I've been doing this for 23 years, but I started Uh this at Caldwell Banker on 75th Street. Do you remember coming in there? Yeah, I do. You you came in there 23 years ago and this was my first year in real estate and you came in and gave us all a bird's eye view of drive it, stucco the differences and some other things too and i'm leading up to a question in that uh, so we know that drive it and the system behind it has changed and morphed over the years right correct yeah what's the difference of a drive it system now as opposed to one back when you did that presentation 23 years ago. So just a a brief history. So uh, I had actually bought the technology from a German company in 1969. And then they brought it over here to the United States. And when they brought it here in 1969, it was mostly on commercial properties. And they were installing the system over wood framing or steel framing in some cases. Um, but not the way it was done in Europe. And the problem eventually came, uh, was, was discovered in the 90s 
because other companies drive it had an exclusive for 10 years. Then other companies in 79, <clears throat> Stowe was another company that started manufacturing the product. But they were all building with this product that came over from Europe that was in, in effect a barrier system. And it was designed to keep water out. And in Europe, it was applied over masonry. So even if water got in, there weren't water-sensitive materials behind the wall that could deteriorate the structure. But they brought it over here, and in the U.S., we build with wood. And so when water gets in, if it has no way to get out, you're in trouble. So that was the original system. Fast forward mm -hmm. to the 90s, discovered a lot of problems with the product. Most of it was due to installation, but a big part of it was because it was a, a barrier system that mm -hmm. trapped the moisture. So mm -hmm. there were no provisions for, uh, for drainage. So the manufacturers started developing drainable systems. They got caught up in all the class action lawsuits, people coming after them, and they held the line for a long time. They kept defending the barrier system. They kept saying, there's nothing wrong with the product, it's installation. And mm -hmm. funny enough, as soon as they settled the class action in 2000, they came out with a bulletin that said, we're no longer recommending the use of the barrier system in wood frame construction. So not a coincidence. Right. So newer systems allow for drainage. There's different ways of doing it. But, you know, and again, it's only for incidental moisture. So you don't want large amounts of water dumping behind the wall. But mm -hmm. if, if a window leaks or if, a caulk, if the caulk fails before you catch it, a little water gets in and has a way to get out. So that's yeah. really the key. Okay. So, yeah, just yeah. better drainage. And uh, as a result of the if you will, the substrate behind the substrate is wood. So you have to have better drainage because yes. if you do get moisture back there, you could get mold, you could get all kinds yep. of things going on. <clears throat> so the, the new design of drainable systems have drainable components behind the wall and a weak component at the base of the wall. Mm -hmm. So incidental moisture that gets in goes down that drainage plane it never really comes in contact in theory with the wood substrate because there's building paper. In, in the case of stucco or uh, adhered stone, there's two layers of building paper. So you have a drainage plane there. Mm -hmm. You have a screed at the base of the wall uh, and then flashing uh, in, in various locations to divert the water away from the wall. So they've, they've made a lot of, uh, they've compensated a lot for uh, the problems and, and, yeah. they, and for the most part, they've resolved those issues. Have they but resolved again, them? That's, that was my next question. They have. But again, you know, and, and going back to the barrier system, I just want to say about that, we still inspect homes that are 25, 30 years old that have the barrier system on them that don't have any issues because the homeowners okay. are doing the proper maintenance. And mm -hmm. part of that is having periodic inspections and checking the sealants and making sure the caulking and everything is in sound condition to keep the water out. And as mm -hmm. long as you maintain it properly, you should never have a problem. Where mm -hmm. people in trouble is, I do an inspection for a buyer, they get in the home, everything is good, they, they fix whatever issues we discovered. And they call in five years and they say, I think it's time for my annual inspection. I'm like, well, yeah. it's been five years, it's not a year. Yeah. So 
you know, you miss your four annual inspections. You know, that happened to me with my uh, air conditioner a couple of years ago. And uh, again, just making sure that it's really important to people if you're going to own homes, right, that you have an ongoing checklist of stuff that needs an annual checkup. I I bought my house, my current house in 2018, and we never had a seasonal uh, air conditioning inspection. And then the air conditioner went out when it was really hot. So mm-hmm. my HVAC guy came out and uh, he's like, <clears throat> never service this machine. How long have you lived here? I'm like, uh, five years. <laughs> yeah. He's like, yeah, that'll do it. So you're getting a new machine. So the point about this, I, I think, Cliff, is your annual inspections are designed to be annual for your own protection. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. for your bottom line, and- frankly. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I want to touch on briefly, and I don't know if you were going to get to this, Larry, is over the years, our our services have um, evolved and Mm -hmm. we started doing inspections of other claddings. And we found very similar problems, especially uh, more recently with adhered stone veneer. So um, back in the 90s, when I was doing inspection in Naperville in the late 90s, and we found a lot of problems in some of the high up, upper scale subdivisions out there with drive it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people were removing that system from their home and going back with another type of cladding. And mm-hmm. a lot of them, unfortunately, went back with adhered stone. <laughs> and back then, adhered stone was just evolving and becoming popular, and the installers were not installing it properly. So mm-hmm. adhered stone is just like stucco. You, all your layers of, of stucco, you have your metal lath, you have Portland cement, so that we're talking hard coat stucco now, mm-hmm. traditional stucco. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have your metal lath that gets attached to the framing and the and or the sheathing. Then you have uh, your your base coat, which is a plaster material or some base coat, and that gets keyed into the metal lath. And then you mm-hmm. have a scratch coat. And then they put a finish coat over that to, to make a stuck foam. So there's no foam like with, with the IFS. <clears throat> the difference is that with uh, adhered stone, instead of putting the stucco, they attach the stone to it. So it's essentially all the components behind the wall are just like stucco. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only difference is the outside. It looks like stone. Interesting. It's thin, okay. it's thin cut and it's adhered to the wall. It's not like full dimension stone, which is like brick that sits on the foundation. Mm-hmm. So a lot of your more upscale homes have dimension stone. And then and then people who previously may have had <clears throat> problems with drive it, they don't have a foundation lead support brick or stone. So they have to go with a product that hangs on the wall. So they mm-hmm. either go with stucco or a drainable leaf system or stone. So, so we I'm- have ways of inspecting stone and checking for moisture and all of that too. I'm going to guess that you run into a lot of houses with multiple different types of exterior substrates. So yes, because a lot of houses are built, part of it drive it, part of it stone, part of it brick, part of it siding maybe. And tell us a little bit about that process when you run into a house like that. So we, um, I mentioned that we do a lot of relocation inspections mm-hmm. and over the years they've kind of evolved and we do a lot of what they call IDs now, where they just want us to go to the property and identify all the different clamps that are on the property. 
-hmm. and then they have a list for their in you know internal um internal process where some of their reload clients require uh, a further inspection if it's stucco if it turns out that it's eifs out of them still don't even allow that in the relocation program they'll kick them out of the program mm. so and they want to identify that they're planning and sometimes we'll go to a house and like you said there's you know there's eaps on three sides and then on the front they've got uh you know stone veneer yep. so we tell them there's eaps and stone and they tell us okay well on this one we want you to inspect the stone but we're not we're excluding eaps or we want you to inspect the eaps and the stone so we you know and and we can do both uh, and there's different pricing schedules for for doing both and or one or the other, yeah. but it's it's probably good advice at least for uh, for your purposes as realtors uh, to inform your clients as buyers that there are issues with these other materials and that they at least need to be educated about the potential problems. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean there's going to be problems even with EAPs. There's plenty of EAPS homes we inspect and we don't find any issues other than mm -hmm. maintenance issues. Uh, mm -hmm. Just because it's got it on there doesn't mean it's a it's doomsday. It's a problem. So, yeah. 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 But they have to inspect it because you don't know unless you inspect it. That's the now, key. you mentioned brick. Yeah. What, are, what are problems that you can get? Well, before I get into that, yeah. someone was telling me that they had a drive at home that they were selling. And mm -hmm. they had a problem with uh, uh, woodpeckers on the drive it. <laughs> and I've never yeah. heard that before. I've heard woodpeckers on, you know, uh, what's it called? Dylan? Cedar. The, uh, cedar on cedar. Yeah. But mm -hmm. um, I've never heard of woodpeckers being attracted yeah, because... to drive it. Yeah, they're not really attracted to it, but but they get on the side of the house and they start pecking at it. And because the exterior lamina, which is the the base coat finish and mesh that's on the outside of the foam, is very thin. It's only like an eighth of an inch at the, at the most. And mm -hmm. they start pecking at it. And by the time they get through that exterior and then they get into the foam and they realize, oh, this isn't a tree and they fly away. Mm -hmm. So then, and and at that point, the hole's there, and then other birds come and start nesting in there. So it becomes a, you know, a problem. But the other yeah. interesting thing is in Naperville, for instance, and in Aurora, like in Stonebridge, there's a lot of homes that are on golf courses. Yeah. So we see golf balls hitting the side of the house oh, and yeah. causing the same kind of damage that that the birds cause. Yeah. What's interesting about that is. There is a way I'm working on a project. Actually, it's coming up in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry to say I have to go there, um, uh, possibly even yeah. for a month. If you need but, help, uh, they're going to. I know okay. Joe won't. So, I'll, I'll call him. Right. <laughs> so they um, so what they're doing is they're using a hurricane impact system. So I, and they're calling it missile uh, resistant. So literally you could take a hammer to the side of and it and it's a and it's an EIFS product. And you really? could take a hammer to it and you and you won't be able to get it through there. It's hurricane resistant. So the builders who build homes on golf course could use high impact mesh and the and the golf balls would bounce off the, the house. But they don't want to spend the extra, you know, I was gonna say you're talking about color. a lot more money. It's not a lot more money. It's really, oh, it's, not? it's okay. maybe, 
No, it's maybe a dollar a square foot extra. Okay. Um, All right. So not, not, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there are ways to prevent it, but once the hole is there, it's there and it's fixed. And we go back to what we talked about with cracking before. It's the same issue. If you patch a hole, you're going to have a patch. If you patch, you know, if you get five holes in the side of the house, you probably want to patch the holes and refinish the whole wall uh, rather than having a patch in the middle of the wall. So, mm-hmm. what are but the again, problems those, you those kind of with... holes don't, no, go they ahead. don't cause moisture issues in most cases. Okay. And people oh, say, uh, well, how, no, how can I have a hole in the side of the house and it's not a moisture issue? Because if you think about it, even a driving rain, you would actually have to take a, you, you'd have to take a hose and shove it in that hole and to get any significant water in there. Mm-hmm. If it's just raining, water's not going to go into the hole. It's going to run okay. down on the sides. It's going to go, you know. So the bigger issue is it's it's aesthetic and also like I mentioned before, other birds will come along and start nesting in there and then they hollow out the the foam and they mm-hmm. start using it for nesting materials and it just becomes a mess. So yeah. you want to seal those up as soon as you can, just to limit your exposure. Gotcha. What, um, yeah. Dylan? You got anything? You got any questions you want? I got nothing. Okay. So here, I got okay. one more question because yeah. um, I'm curious about this. So houses that are all brick, what mm-hmm. kind of issues, uh, other than you know, you have to, uh, what's it called when you're repairing brick? You know, top pointing tuck pointing other than that um what are really some problems are, you could have with brick yeah there really are very minimal issues with brick and in fact we don't really inspect a lot of brick we have a project mm-hmm. that we're doing in baltimore that's coming up that's a combination of brick and and eifs but the eaves in the areas where the brick is the eaves was actually it's an older structure so the eaves was installed over the brick so it's mm-hmm. actually more like the European way of using eaves. So we gotcha. anticipate a lot of moisture issues, but we are going to call out, you know, tuck pointing and caulking and things like that, because just like with any cladding, you want to keep the water out. Also with brick, you have to have a foundation. It's on the foundation ledge. You have to have flashing and weep holes and all of that and make sure that their weep holes are cleared out so water mm-hmm. can escape and, and all of that. But it, being a cavity wall system, there's actually a backup system with brick and it's properly installed and flashed at the base of the wall. You really have very minimal. Not going to have a lot of issues. Yeah. No. So uh, this has been really interesting because, you know, like with anything and like what Dylan mentioned, guys, if you own a house, you have to do these uh, these checkups, these yearly checkups, just like you should with your own body when you go to the doctor, which of course I don't do. But if you own a house and you want to save money on, you know, lots of potentially expensive repairs, you stay on top of it by using uh, a guy like Cliff and Cliff Caps and Consulting in order to get ahead of these things. So before I let you go, I want to just uh, how do people get in touch with you? What's the best way to do that? And I know you do business locally, but you do business nationally too. Yeah. So, uh, and, how do, and in the Bahamas and yeah, yeah sorry for yes. that. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, what? how do people get in touch with you? Is it best just to go to your website? Do they call you? Yeah. The, the best? So if they go to the website and they click on, there's a but, button on the front page of the website that's uh, started. If they want to just poke around on the website, there's a lot of information there. There's photos. There's documents. They can download a copy of a sample report, that kind of stuff. Uh, awesome. Other resources on there. So there's a lot of information there, but uh, if they want to reach us, the best way is to click on get started, fill out the form with all their information and we'll be in touch with them. Um, our, our phone number locally is uh, 60922. Uh, oh God, I can't remember the rest of it. Cause that's we, okay. Cause we don't. It's on the website, right? <laughs> it's on the website. It's on the website. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. No, that's Brain all right. I, I I forget the we, I forget the phone number to the radio station, and it's literally so, sitting right in front of me. So the one one more thing I just want to stress to you yeah. before we go, yeah, yeah, is that from your perspective as realtors, I think it's important to inform your clients, whether it's a buyer or a seller. Obviously, inform the buyer there's potential problems, but sellers need to be proactive because. I can't tell you how many times I've come across a situation where the seller decides to put their house on the market and they they think somehow they're going to skate around the issue. But as soon as people start Googling, you know, uh, drive it or whatever, they see information and misinformation about the problems and they mm -hmm. start freaking out. Yeah. So the best recommendation for sellers is have an inspection. If there are major issues, obviously you have to take care of those. If there's just minor issues, you may just want to just say, okay, we had an inspection. These are maintenance issues that a new homeowner is going to have to deal with. But really, they need to be proactive because otherwise uh, a buyer comes along, they want to hire their own inspector, and then they're at the mercy of that inspector. They don't know Do what a pre-sale home inspection yes. on your drive-in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that bottom absolutely. line is I suggest that to a lot of sellers, just mm -hmm. typical inspection, do a pre-sale home inspection. And uh, it's, it's going to save you a lot of grief when it comes to negotiating those home inspection issues. So yes. uh, with that, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm Thanks sorry you're going to be in the, in the Bahamas shortly. Yeah, I, well, I, somebody's got to do it. You, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> nice. Thanks for best. sharing, Cliff. Yeah, all the best yep. to you and your wife, Jill. And uh, be safe, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Larry. Thank you, Dylan. Okay. Nice to meet you. Yep, you bet. Okay, Likewise. talk to you Take soon. Care. Yeah. All right, everybody. That was Dylan. Excuse me. This is Dylan. Yeah, no, that, that was that Cliff was Capson of Clip. Cliff Capson Consulting, and I think he gave some good advice about getting pre-inspection, pre-sale inspections. If you have a drive at home or other type of cladding, exterior cladding that might need that. With all that said, we're going to take a quick break right now. We're going to come back and talk about some of the market dynamics going on out there in the real estate market. Tune in to Real Estate Radio, Saturdays at 9 a.m., hosted by the real estate therapist, Larry Shackman, a top-producing real estate broker, author, CEO, and founder of TrustedAgentUSA.com. Top-performing agents for 2% commission, saving you thousands when you sell, buy, or invest. Real Estate Radio, the ultimate real estate radio experience. Get insider tips from experts throughout the real estate industry. Streaming live on Facebook at WCPT 820. Trusted Agent USA, Illinois, license number 475-145-795.
Welcome back to Real Estate Radio, sponsored in part by TrustedAgentUSA.com, the ultimate real estate matchmaker, saving you thousands. Now, now back to Larry, the real estate therapist. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. And we are going to jump in real quickly to some of the market stats and some of the dynamics of what's going on in the market right now. Dylan, bring us up to date on some of the things you want to talk so, about. So, Larry, the biggest thing I want to talk about is I think it's fascinating. Yesterday, we had kind of a lousy day in mortgage rates, um, and that was caused by the unemployment um, figures being released for the month of January. And in a surprise to basically everybody, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, which some people are contending is the government ministry of disinformation, uh, tells us that we had 353,000 jobs created last month. Largely, that's due to some adjustments in the birth death pool and some other statistical maneuverings that they use to calculate the numbers because it's basically a data extrapolation. However, there's a second survey that's released at the same time. And that is the household survey where they actually call people up and ask them who's working, how much are they working, how many hours are they working, what are they making per hour. And that is an amazing difference. And here's what I mean. We talked last month that there were $200,000 jobs. There are 353 this month. Over the course of the last year, the government has announced that there's been in essence, 900,000 jobs, 870,000 jobs created in the economy. Mm -hmm. But the reality is the non, the, the household survey, not the government statistical survey, we had 133 million people working this month. A year ago, we had 133 million people working. And actually in the rounding, there's about 100,000 less. Mm -hmm. but they've increased the, the, the amount of jobs created in the economy has increased over 2 million. It's a BS number. Additionally, if you look at the household survey, 870,000 part-time jobs have been added to the mix, right? In addition to the full-time jobs at 133 million, it's gone from 27.0 to 27.9. That's people side hustle and Uber, that's people picking up mm -hmm. hours because they can't get a full-time job, all sorts of other things. So uh, the, the, the markets in a normal situation would have been absolutely devastated by the job number, meaning rates would have went from 6.6 to seven and a quarter like that mm -hmm. today. The fact of the matter is there's still some trading belief in the number. We're solidly at six and three quarters for most borrowers. Again, not a quote, all the disclosures, got to get a detailed information in order to get an actual quote for you roughly. And so the thing is that the market is waking up to the idea that the unemployment number is not reliable. And the question is, how is that going to shake out as it affects rates over time? Because if that unemployment number continues to not be a reliable statistic, then the question for the traders is how do you trade? because you trade on information. Rates go up or down based on real-world inflation expectations, mm -hmm. largely caused by the, the, the PPI, the CPI, and this monthly employment report. Mm -hmm. Well, if we don't trust one set of numbers, what are we going to have? Okay, and I, I get all that. So how do we get numbers that we trust? Uh, I think there's one place that I think, uh, and I was reading some buzz yesterday, that there's a lot of looking 
at the ADP payroll numbers. ADP for most folks who know is a payroll management company, right? Mm -hmm. And so they also release a report every month and it's been wildly different every month than the monthly government numbers. But they, they release the numbers based on the companies that they serve in the real world, payrolls. right? So if, if, if ADP has 60% of the payroll in the marketplace, right? And everybody else, paychecks and all the other smaller competitors have the other 40%. Well, mm -hmm. you can turn around and extrapolate most months that if you look at the ADP number and it says 100,000 jobs and the government says 350,000 jobs, well, the, the number's probably the 100,000 plus another 40 or 50 for all the other companies and not the 350 total, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But in the meantime, it adds confusion to the mortgage rate market, which I'm worried about. Okay, so it adds confusion to the mortgage rate market. And, uh, you know, the thing that is interesting to me is that the stock market is going absolutely nuts. They're over 38,000. It's crazy. And tell me what's driving that. Larry, if I knew what was driving that, I would be a trader and not a mortgage lender for a living. So and I can't I really tell you that. I understand that. But, you know, again, when we take all of this into the big picture, right. pricing in the grocery stores, you know, some other uh, uh, pro uh, products have gone down. Staple products have gone sure, down sure. in price recently. In addition to that, gas prices, and I'm just playing devil's advocate here, gas prices are remaining at $3 or under in most parts of the country. Uh, not all, but in many parts of the country. Sure, sure. And uh, we get these job things that may or may not be accurate. And I, I understand what you're saying. And I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I think where you're going, Larry, is interesting because here's the thing I like. And consumer spending is up and consumer confidence is up. Buyer demand for housing is through the roof. If we had more houses on the market, we'd be going nuts right now. Uh, I, I agree with you there. The thing I think is interesting in the stuff you mentioned in terms of gas prices and some of this other stuff. And honestly, with this thing, if we have 900,000 part-time jobs instead of full-time jobs over the course of the last year, although I don't love the statistics, right? And I don't believe them for a minute. The thing is that the $800,000 or the 800,000 part-time jobs are deflationary because if I can turn around and instead of, if, if, if I can if I end up earning $30,000 grinding out part-time work over the course of a year, instead of having a salary of $60,000, it's deflationary, right? Mm -hmm. And so it stinks to be the person who's got less income. I totally get that. Mm -hmm. However, that lower income means less inflation opportunity in the economy. And so remember that rates generally are built on inflation. And look, this whole thing is like a teeter-totter, right? Which and, we're still at 3.7%. Right. And so at the end of the day, if inflation goes down, in theory, the rates go down and the opportunity to stimulate the economy goes up. And if rates go up, the opportunity to stimulate the economy evaporates because it's more expensive to do so, especially if you're a big company, you got to borrow money at 7, 8, 10% in order to finance whatever, your new plant, your new printer, your new this, your new that. And, and so there's always this balancing act. And the thing that happened during the pandemic when we had 3% mortgage rates is we had people 
earning a lot of money and a lot of opportunity to spend it and to finance it at low rates. And the whole thing was a little bit destructive. And mm -hmm. so we're still shaking that out over time. But I really do like that um, the, it seems like the seesaw is a little bit back in balance, right? And so that's a healthy thing given this housing demand. Mm -hmm. So I like it. Okay. And do we have a caller? Okay, let's bring our caller on. Our caller is- Our caller's Claire. Hey, Claire, how Claire are you today? Claire from Chicago. Hey, Claire, what's up? Hi, um, I just tuned in a little late, but I was wondering if there are a website for this ADP? For? For the ADP number? So you were saying the statistics job numbers were different in the ABP. Do they have a website? Yes. Yeah, so, so if you just get, I will actually, let me do, I will Google it since I'm sitting here on the computer. It's the Bureau of Labor Statistics website. And their website is bls.gov. I thought you said it was the ADP. ADP figures are publicly available figures as well. So the ADP employment report is available at adpemploymentreport.com. They make a very fancy and name for that. ADP employment report? Yes, adpemploymentreport.com. So private, and, and for example, ADP says employers added 107,000 jobs in January. But the Bureau of Labor Statistics says they added 353,000. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, as I mentioned, is a statistics calculation based on birth debts, charts, payroll numbers, people added at the end of the year. The ADP number is just how many people got added to payrolls for the companies that we served last month. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, there you go. So they're different. Yes, they're, different that, numbers, they're, so. di they're different numbers, and that's the discussion at hand. Who are we going to believe? The, the the private enterprise business that is giving us the information that they're, at, again, a publicly traded company that has disclosure requirements that they have to tell us what the number is accurately, or the government who is just admitting that they have a statistical model rather than an actual data-driven model. Yeah, and those numbers are, I mean, ADP's number is literally less than a third of what the government came out. Exactly. So again, Claire, uh, those websites are adpemploymentreport.com and bls.gov. What else can we answer for you? That's all. Great show. Thanks for, um, thanks for the information. Yeah, thanks you for bet. calling in. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back to wrap it up. Tune in to Real Estate Radio, Saturdays at 9 a.m., hosted by the real estate therapist, Larry Shackman, a top-producing real estate broker, author, CEO, and founder of TrustedAgentUSA.com. Top-performing agents for 2% commission, saving you thousands when you sell, buy, or invest. Real Estate Radio, the ultimate real estate radio experience. Get insider tips from experts throughout the real estate industry. Streaming live on Facebook at WCPT 820. Trusted Agent USA, Illinois, license number 475-145-795. Welcome back to Real Estate Radio, sponsored in part by TrustedAgentUSA.com, the ultimate real estate matchmaker, saving you thousands. Now, now back to Larry, the real estate therapist. All right, everybody, we are back. We want to thank you for joining us today on the Real Estate Radio Show podcast. Remember, we stream live 
every single Saturday, 9 to 10 a.m. and Wednesday, 11 to 12 a.m. on Facebook at uh, the Real Estate Radio Show podcast group, as well as on YouTube and LinkedIn. Uh, Dylan, any final thoughts? You know, Larry, I learned more about drive it and house cladding today than I'm ever going to learn on any other day in my lifetime. And I appreciate our hour on the couch. So yeah, uh, next week back to more real estate. Well, not that that isn't real estate specific, but I think we're going to spend a lot more time on uh, the spring market come next week, because uh, once we get after next weekend, we have the unofficial opening of the spring market in the Chicago real estate market, right? Yeah. And uh, like we we've been talking about in the past, you know, it's not as predictable what the spring mark is the spring market. Actually, the summer market is the summer market, the winter, the fall market. And you I'm know, as curious as you are, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see what happens there. But everything's pointing in a pretty good direction in that interest rates are staying, you know, right around six and a half percent. And uh, so having said all that, you guys, thank you for joining us on the Real Estate Radio Show podcast. We're going to see you next Saturday. Uh, Peace, love, and be good to yourself. Thanks, Larry. All right.